I think it's one of the most powerful strategies in this business or one of the reasons why we all do this. There's a secret the rich and wealthy have been keeping that they use to exponentially grow their wealth. This philosophy doesn't ask the question, what is the return on investment, but rather, how long will it take for it to come back to you so you can reinvest? It's called the velocity of money. And today, alongside Brandon Jenkins, founder of Birch Prosper, who's invested in over 2,300 units, we're going to explain why this slight tweak in your investment philosophy can significantly amplify your approach. A lot of people either overlook it or they haven't heard enough about it or they don't think it actually works but once they see it in play you can't unsee what you've seen are you ready for an upgrade so my, my first job was to work as a petroleum engineer um, and more specifically a drilling engineer so i was in oil and gas for some time and um, if anyone is familiar with the oil and gas business then you know that it's a, a good one when it's good but when it uh, when the price drops then they tend to show people the door um, and so um, i witnessed that firsthand i actually worked through excuse me, through three downturns. Um, the second one had a material effect on me because um, although I was able to, to keep my job uh, during that particular downturn, you know, I really started to see the potential impact of um, employment risk, right? And not having enough uh, streams of income to really insulate you against some of the downsides that we all face, you know, I think that's the reality of life. So um, one of my good buddies from college, he, uh, um, we used to flip properties in a market that was outside of where I lived at the time. So I lived in Houston when I was a petroleum engineer. Um, and so I went out and, and kind of checked out his operation. I really thought it was uh, fascinating, but I, I wanted to kind of lean more toward predictability, cash flow, these kinds of things. So I started off as a single family um, investor and I got to 12 uh, properties and then wanted to scale. So I wanted to scale up and take advantage of economies of scale and uh, velocity of increase the velocity of my capital, all these good things. And so um, I stepped into the syndication space as a passive investor or a limited partner. Um, and then uh, fast forward to now, I'm now uh, both a limited partner and an active partner, a GP on deals. And so um, I have 2,900 units as of uh, this past week. And so, um, yeah, I would say that my superpower is probably um, resourcefulness and maybe maybe even curiosity. You know, I, I really started to, uh, if, if something is of interest to me, I, I tend to chase it down, get all the facts meet the right people, mentors, you know, and that sort of thing to help me um, craft a plan. And so, um, and then take action. I think that's maybe what sort of my super, my origin story and my superpower, if I had to call it one, that's what it is. And you mentioned you were in the oil and gas industry and uh, you also invested in single family rentals before you moved into the multifamily space. How has that concept of the velocity of money, which is going to be the central theme of today's topic and conversation, how has that played a role in your journey so far? And can you also define what the velocity of money is for our audience? Yeah, um, the way that I like to think about it is, you know, if if you can find a way to essentially um, increase the magnitude or the impact that your capital has, um, you know, there are many places to invest your, your capital, your hard-earned money. But if you can put it in an instrument where in the same amount of time as another vehicle, um, you can get significantly higher returns, um, and particularly when there are things that are inherent to the vehicle that will allow you to capture a larger um, uh, return in a short amount of time, much in the way that multifamily uh, properties does. Okay, so if you think about, and, and even, so if you think about single family, with single family with one transaction, you get one door, okay? Um, and even if you go, you know, it, it, whether it's a duplex or triplex, quadplex, you know, you'll, you'll get one, two, three, four doors, okay, with one transaction. But if you go to a larger deals, 
um, for roughly the same amount of time. It might be, you know, 60, 90 days for the uh, actual settlement process and due diligence and all these things. Um, but ultimately for that one transaction, you now have a hundred doors, 150, 250 doors. Okay. And so you are just um, taking advantage of economies of scale in that way, because your capital, first of all, is being uh, multiplied. Your time is, you know, you're, you're cutting down on time significantly. I like to call real estate. It's almost like a time machine. It sort of gives you some time back. Um, you multiply your time, the time you have in a day. You know, we all say that we only have 24 hours in a day, but one way to uh, significantly amplify or multiply that um, is to find a way to uh, be able to sort of uh, springboard your ca your capital or make better use of your capital so that it's working harder for you than it would in another vehicle. So that's kind of how I summarize what, what I mean by the velocity of my capital is. Yeah. And do you have anything to add about how that has sort of showed up along your journey so far? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I can tell you that uh, I was very surprised to find out just how, um, uh, not tangible, but how, how real the, the results are um, and how it's been for me. So one thing I, I'll share with you is um, in the last role that I worked in um, as a petroleum engineer, Okay, so I got laid off. It was with a company who um, I, I enjoyed the company, enjoyed the people, so I don't have anything you know bad to say or anything like that. Um, but the company sold a major portion of their assets, and so I was laid off. Okay, so I, I took um, it took me about two and a half years to find another role after that. At this point, I do this full time, but um, I found another another gig. Um, and during that time, it was a, as you can imagine a very difficult time because I applied to hundreds of jobs. Okay. Um, and so I got real comfortable with rejection. I can tell you that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I was able to find a job eventually and I was all upset and I was, you know, with my, my father at one point, I just had a conversation with him and he said, well, hold on, you know, Brandon, just let's stop for a moment. And I want you to take a look at the returns that you've gotten from these deals that you've been investing in. And I just, as, as uh, simple as that sounds this whole time, you know, the whole time I was dealing with that, I really didn't think to do that. So I stopped and said, okay, you know, let me, let me, let me just kind of take a look and summarize it. And long story short, uh, long story long, <laughs> it was, um, um, it was a salary, you know? And so it was, I was able to, even during that period of uncertainty and sort of being in the, in the thick of it, um, these, the, the deals and this, the capital that I put toward these syndication deals, it literally was able to pay me a salary. Okay. And so, and I, granted, I reinvest, uh, 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 reinvested a good portion of that, but, but that's, that's the real impact that it's had on, on, on me. And so the light bulb was already on, but it really turned up, um, you know, uh, even more after that. Yeah. Something you mentioned earlier is that you navigated three downturns during the oil and gas, uh, while you were in that space. I wanted to know how has real estate compared to to that space in terms of stability and resilience when it comes to that velocity of money principle? Yeah, I, I, real estate is definitely um, a much more stable um, uh, industry sector. You know, to, for one thing, you have a number of different asset classes in there that can even give you varying uh, degrees of stability. Um, you know, oil and gas. Uh, it's interesting though. You know, you you have private placement deals, private um, investments in the oil and gas space, similar to uh, real estate. And it does have its advantages. So, so, you know, I know that's another topic, but it does have its, its advantages. It is still though a very risky play. So it's not something you want to get involved in if you, um, you know, kind of 
I don't know if you if you don't have an awareness of what that business uh, means, really, I was going to say if you don't have a lot like the if you need the money, so to speak, but I don't want to say that it's an investment. Okay, so there are no, no guarantees. But I'll say that if you don't understand that business and the leverage that an operator can pull to maximize the return, then that's something you, you have to be careful of. But I'll say that um, the real estate space is, is far more stable. You know, it, it, we're providing a fundamental need, which is something that I love. You know, even with what we're with what's happening now in the marketplace, right? High interest rates, inflation. You know, there's a lot. Of the transactional volume is slow because the gap between the buyer and the and the seller is wide, and right. So all these things that are going on now, but we're still providing a fundamental need, okay? And we still have a hard asset, and and it still is something that if you manage it properly and make it through this, that you'll be in a good position on the other side of this. So a downturn means something very different in real estate than it does, especially in commercial real estate than it does in the oil and gas space, because especially for multifamily, which is what I focus on, because in multifamily, you are providing a need. Okay. So you can still do something to, um, as long as you buy, right, you can still do something to manage the property and uh, make sure that it survives as long as it's a healthy deal. And then come out on the other side of this and your value would do what it was. Well, well, I'm sorry, what it, not what it was, but what it will, right? The, the market, you, you'll, you make sure you maximize your NOI to juice up the value of the property. But in terms of the overall kind of investment, the investor appetite and being able to leverage some of that upside, you know, survive the downturn and then you'll be in good shape on the other side. Yeah, this velocity of capital concept, I think, can be confusing for some people. And I know you have a podcast called The Capital Stack. And so I imagine, and of course, you are in the multifamily syndication space. So I imagine you are educating investors. That's a big part of your job. Um, I wanted to know, are there any common misconceptions or misunderstandings that you find are very prevalent when it comes to that velocity of capital concept? Um, yeah, I think, I think that um, one thing that I believe is a misconception is when people step into this arena, but they, but they don't want to have any of their own capital in play um, now, here's the thing. Are there ways to do that? Sure. Okay. I don't advise people to, um, you know, because I think that if nothing else, you, you need to have the the mindset of this is my capital. And so I believe that when people go too far down the path of no money, you know, I'm not going to put any money into it, then I think that you have a mindset shift. Now, that's not true for everyone, but that's the risk that you that, that you might run into is that you say, well, it, you know, sure, it's I'm going to treat it with respect, but ultimately, it's not it's not my capital, so I didn't have anything to lose. So I believe believe in having skin in the game. I also believe that even from a practical standpoint, you know, if you um, the more if you have some capital to work with, then it becomes easier um, for you to execute. You know, now, but but so so that's one thing that I would say is kind of a misconception. I, I understand where it comes from. I understand the spirit of it, and I don't mean to suggest that you have to be you know rich and wealthy before you can um, uh, invest. But I'm saying that if you're going to be on the active side, there's a, there's a lot to consider. Risk capital is not a is not something to scoff at. You know, you, I've had plenty of people who have put up upfront capital in a deal, and especially when the transactional volume was a bit higher. So, like you know, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, put capital into the deal, and it was uh, during a period where uh, uh, brokers and sellers were not really amenable or as amenable to certain contingencies, and so um, in some cases they might have lost out on that upfront capital, that risk capital. And so if you don't, you know, and that's basically what I'm getting at here is if you don't, um, if you're someone that believes that you can get in with no capital, then stuff like that will, will can, it can take you out of the game, uh, you know? So that, that's, that's something I would say is kind of a, a misconception. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. 
there's a certain facet I want to expand on for this whole velocity of capital principle is that a lot of times when you're focusing on that and that's your main priority, you're shifting the focus from how much a return of a return you're going to receive on the investment to how soon you can receive the return on the investment, which is a key distinction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a big factor that determines what rate you'll get your capital back is the investment itself and the asset class. So I want to know, like, how do you determine which asset classes mm-hmm. have a higher capital velocity? And is it like, I'm sure that there are subsets of multifamily assets. So can you expand on that a little bit? I'm sure. So, so the way that I do it is to look at a metric called the internal rate of return. Um, it's something that is a bit difficult. To, you can't calculate it by hand, right? <laughs> but, but it is difficult to explain. I'll say that um, the short way of, of, of thinking about this is your internal rate of return, your IRR, tends to be higher the sooner you exit, okay, just broadly speaking. Um, uh, but when I'm comparing opportunities, then what I would do is to look at the internal rate of return across all of those opportunities. So it's a time bound metric. Um, it gives you a sense of the, the actually real return based on, you know, a certain discount rate or an expected return. Um, and it will tell you which of the projects that you're pursuing will give you the better return on your capital. Okay. So, I mean, and a lot of businesses function this way as well, when they're determining which project they're going to allocate capital to oil oil and gas actually does the same thing. You know, they tend to look at, you know, we could execute or or commit capital to these projects and drill these wells and, you know, produce these fields, but what's the IRR. And so they'll come up with a priority based on that and some other factors. That's the way that I do it. So I tend to look at what, what's the internal rate of return on the project, but then also, you know, you're going to want to factor in your risk appetite. On top of that, you know, I know there's no one number that's going to give you the, the answer, but if there was one, that would be the one. That reminds me of, uh, I think we already touched on this, but I want to highlight that difference between return on capital and return of capital. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of investors, I, I definitely think they're, they're prioritizing uh, the return on investment, but not necessarily the return of their investment. Can you maybe clarify the difference there? Yeah. So I would say simply put, you know, if I, if I have a deal and I'm a passive investor, I put hundred K into the deal. And um, it's supposed to get me, you know, the equity multiple or something like that is one point, uh, I don't know, one point six X or something. So it's going to give me 60 percent um, return um, on top of my capital return on capital is the return of your initial initial principal. So that 100 K that I put into the deal, you know, that's the return of my capital. The return on capital is anything on top of that. So if it's an equity multiple is basically what it sounds like. It's just the, re- the multiple multiplier of your, your principal, your capital. And so if I put 100 in and the, the project actually uh, carries out per the projections and it's 1.8 or whatever number I just said, 1.6, 1.8, um, let's say I'll go with 1.8. So if it's 1.8 equity multiple, then the total that I get is then 180,000 out of the project. So return of capital, 100,000, which is what I put in my principal. Return on capital will be then that 80% or that uh, 80,000. Yeah, one of the points I think we're driving home is that uh, achieving a return on your investment sooner allows you to reinvest it with, uh, to make even more passive income and to expand your wealth. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. And that's and for, to me, that's, that's, that's important. You know, there's some models where um, they call it the perpetuity model, which um, is something that um, it's been a, time, a while since I've seen a deal come through with that, but it's a really good one because what it allows passive investors to then do is to you get the return of your capital. And like you just mentioned, you can uh, deploy that in, a diff- in another deal. And then you're still, in some cases, you're still in the deal. So that capital you're getting now what's called infinite returns. 
and it's uh, you know it's it's returning capital or, uh, or or returns from from the deal that you're in, and it's it's working for you. Meanwhile, you can take your principal and I'll put that in another deal. Um, so yeah. Yeah, I think what would be really helpful is if you can maybe provide an, an example, uh, or if you have an example that you've done, or if you've heard of one regarding how that reinvestment process would work and the benefits of it to the investor. Yeah, yeah. So, so I haven't personally have had a perpetuity model um, deal, but I've, I've seen one. An, an example might be, you know, if you're if you're in an investment opportunity, a, a syndication deal, where the uh, the sponsorship team plans to let's say it's a five year hold or something like that. Um, and the sponsorship team plans to refinance at year three. Okay, so they'll do a, a refinance, a cash out refinance. They'll return the uh, principal or the the, um, the initial investment to their investors. In some in some instances, it's you know it might not be a full hundred percent, but for this conversation, we'll assume it is one hundred percent of their original capital. Um, meanwhile, anything the return uh, on their capital is still in the deal, and so it's still make you're making money on your money at that point. And uh, because they did a cash out refinance and returned that capital then to the investors, now as a limited partner or as a passive investor, you can take that capital that you now have from the refinance. You can use that in an, another deal. And so any any other any other capital that was earned in that time, on top of your uh, your initial capital that you put into the deal, that's now going to stay with the deal. So distributions, you know, that are still coming out of that property, they're going to go to you every month or every quarter or however the setup is. I know Robert Kiyosaki in the past has always referred to the velocity of capital as the secret the wealthy use to grow their wealth and, and really expand it. So I think I'm so glad you're here to like really break this down because even we didn't really completely understand it when we first got into it. We started wholesaling houses and flips and we're still doing single family on the side. But the whole reason we got into multifamily was because of that velocity of capital and um, if we're getting more bang for our buck, <laughs> for lack of a better phrase. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely a powerful tool that um, you know a, a lot of people either overlook it or they haven't heard enough about it or they don't think it actually works. But once they see it in play, um, most of the people who you know anyone who I know that has actually seen the benefits from that, including myself, um, then you can't unsee what you've seen. And so from then on, um, you know, the, like I say, that, that the light switch is it just kind of goes on, and it, I think it's one of the most powerful. Uh, really the powerful strategies that we kind of have in, in this business. So one of the reasons why we all do this, um, you know, is to, to increase the velocity of your capital and, um, and, and it works, you know? Yeah. In traditional real estate investing, even like I always say mainstream mindset is to focus on long-term appreciation. And we're almost, I, I was, I was under the impression that like the value add approach to investing and the forced appreciation was, a little bit more contrarian to that. Um, but I, I've heard you in a previous interview say that your perspective on value-add investing has changed. And there's a lot of investors out there that will kind of put it on the, on the pedestal as the supreme investment strategy, specifically when it comes to multifamily. So I was really fascinated to know, uh, what is your perspective on value-add? Is value-add appropriate in every market? And I know you're going to probably talk about value preservation, but I want to hold off on that because that's the, the second question I'm going to follow up. So yeah, what is your take on value-add? So my, my take on a value add deal is that um, under the right conditions, it makes it makes sense. Okay, and so I I I like a value add deal if there is an imbalance in the market um, relative to the deal itself. Okay, so if I'm in a um, a sub market where it's a B plus or an A in terms of the market itself, 
but but uh, there's a deal or a property that's that um, is has been maybe poorly managed or whatever it is, and the property itself is like a B minus C plus. Then for me, that imbalance right there really makes it um, a, an attractive deal because then you can capture um, some of that that uh, that imbalance, you know, that that um, that gap. Um, so under those conditions, then value add deals make sense. I don't I don't advise people to um, you know to to seek out those types of opportunities if the the imbalance is thin. So if you're in a deal where it's a C plus deal uh, or a property, and then it's a B minus market then um you know just generally speaking it's a little bit thin and so there's not much of a value add component to it it's it, you know you, you can sort of uh, pitch it as that but the bottom line is there's not much upside and so um you can get yourself into some real trouble um, with with that so it's so it, generally speaking i do i think it works but i think it works under a a narrower set of circumstances than maybe in the past um you know people thought yeah, I wanted to kind of expand on that a little bit. Do you find that more often than not, particularly right now in this environment, that balance is thinner than it maybe was in the past? I, I would say, um, I would say right now, yes, is the short answer. And um, the, and the, the reason be, the reason being, you know, um, we're seeing a cap rate expansion right now. Okay, and so value add deals work really well when in, when you're seeing a, a compression of cap rates. The cap rates going down. Um, and so we're, because cap rates are expanding, it's, it's a little bit difficult then to benefit from a true value add deal. I still think that there are deals in every, you know, every market, you just have to buy it right. And, and, and those kinds of things. But, but I think with where we are right now in the marketplace, yeah, it's, it's a little bit tough to find a deep value add that still makes sense. Yeah. So. And so it's kind of like follow up with that. I know you're now focused on value preservation. And it's almost like maybe like the new wave, or maybe that was like the the, the long uh, philosophy that people have gone back to. Is it's a foundational philosophy when it comes to investing? But can you expand on why you're focused on value preservation right now, and maybe just def define it for context? Sure. So value preservation, um, really for me, it's it's a strategy where you focus on an asset class where you have fewer risks. That that's that's actually what um, if I had to summarize it, that's what it is. You're focusing on a higher quality deal. If, if, you, if you heard of the term flight to quality, basically that summarizes it as well. Value preservation means you're going after opportunities where um, you have inherently de-risked the deal. If it's a newer construction, then you're going to have less of a maintenance uh, risk um, in, in the deal. If it's in an affluent area or an, or an almost affluent area, you're going to have less risk in terms of uh, you know vacancy risk. Or, or whether or not the tenant base can actually afford the property. So you're going to have less risk in terms of the execution of your business plan. Um, you know, you, you have this. And so, and generally speaking, um, as cap rates expand, that expansion will impact sort of your B class and C class a little bit more than it will in A class property. And so um, as an investor, you, you preserve the value is therefore preserved in an A class deal in a newer property um, because you don't feel that expansion. So the value to the asset itself is preserved over a longer period of time relative to a B class or a C class deal. Um, so for me, what it is, it's, you know, if you think about the cycles and the real estate market cycles, you know, you do have to have a different strategy depending on where you are. You know, I think that you can never really get locked in into one and say, this is my, this is my thing. I want to stick to it regardless of what the economy is doing. I think it's a bit wiser to say, I'll adapt a little bit and I'll make some adjustments depending on what I'm seeing. Um, and so I do think right now that, that that's kind of the better play. Now, 
with where we sit today, there are deals that are trading well below intrinsic value. So you can, you can start to get people kind of chasing um, some of that as well, which that's, that's okay. But I do think value preservation is something that um, even from an investor sentiment standpoint, I think that that's something that is much more attractive right now. This discussion on investment strategies and your approach, maybe how uh, you're refining it or really honing in on, on certain aspects of it ties in well with that conversation on the velocity of capital. Uh, in any investment strategy, one of the main core aspects of it is that business plan. And to even break it down further, the exit strategy and kind of like how you plan to exit the deal. Because how are you going to you know, get that velocity of money if you're not exiting one deal to move into another? Um, and that really leads into the next point I want to bring up is um, when it comes to that exit strategy, how are you ensuring that you, you're investing in deals that allow you to reinvest and maintain the momentum uh, as you progress on that journey when it comes to that exit strategy? Um, it, it with, so with respect to the, the deal itself, um, you know, so when you, when you go, go into a deal, one of the things that a seller will do if they're, if they kind of know what they're doing is they'll leave a little bit of meat on the bone. They'll prove, they'll prove up um, their, uh, you know, the potential upside. And by say, by prove up, I basically mean they'll renovate some of the interiors as an example to prove up that, Hey, there's some additional upside. Then the property gets marketed. Then you buy it um, because you realize that there's some more upside that and some other things. So similarly, when we exit deals, what we look for is, okay, listen, you know, we want to leave some quote unquote meat on the bone here. You know, we don't want to, so if, if you don't want to be, that's, that's why you don't want to be at the top of the market. You know, most people, when they project their um, revenues to the property, they're, they're going to aim for um, something that is not being the top, you know, property in that sub market, because then uh, th there's less of a reason or rationale for a buyer to then focus on that deal, unless it's like an institutional buyer or something like that. Um, so from, with respect to the deal, that's kind of how we position ourselves is we'll say, okay, well. I want to make sure that we prove up a certain um, number or a certain percentage of the units to say that there's some more upside here so that the next buyer, um, a next buyer analysis will, will bear this as well. And so it'll show that, okay, here's the upside then to that buyer. So you have to, you have to sweeten the deal for the next person to come along and say, this is a good deal. You know, otherwise, otherwise it's, it's, uh, it's hard for them to really justify uh, buying it from you. Something that we have to be keep touching on is how, like, when it comes to the velocity of capital, investors want their money fast. I mean, that's one of the factors they're looking at is how fast they get their money back. And yeah. I imagine that can lead a lot of people to make aggressive or uh, speculative or just risky assumptions and investment decisions. And so that leads me to, I guess, the next point I wanted to, to touch on is how are you mitigating risk? How do you mitigate risk? But also how do you advise others and your investors that you work with uh, to mitigate risk, but also make sure that they're pursuing that velocity of capital? How are they safeguarding against the risks, particularly in an environment like this that we're seeing right now with all the uncertainty we're facing? Yeah, yeah. one of the things that, so I'm, I'm, I, I usually, um, as much information as I like to give, I do um, try to caution people from going too deep into the weeds in terms of metrics, because I'm like, I'm an engineer, I'm a spreadsheet nut, you know, a nerd. So um, I, I eat that stuff up all day long. I tend to tell people or advise, you know, investors that, hey, listen, these are the few things that you want to pay attention to. And one of the most important ones, in my opinion, is the debt service coverage ratio. It has to be for me. That's one of the ones that's near the top um, when I look at a deal, because it's going to tell you about the health of the deal. So it long, you know, the, the, the short version of what this is, is 
if you have a debt coverage ratio of one, that means you have exactly enough um, profit or, 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 uh, or rent um, to the property to cover your uh, debt service. And if it any higher than that, say if it's a 1.2, 1.3, which typically is what lenders are looking for is about a 1.3. So if it's a 1.3, then that means you have 30% higher than your debt service. And so I tell people to focus on that. How does that look year on year? Um, and then what's the change, you know, what's driving the change to make sure it's an actual real change behind it, not just um, something on a spreadsheet. But um, I, I focus very heavily on that. And that's, and, and going back to the value preservation, you know, conversation, that's another thing that you typically see that is inherent to a highly valued, a quality deal is it typically has a very, very healthy debt service coverage ratio. We're talking like in excess of 1.6, 1.7. It's the deal that we recently closed had over two. Okay. So, so that's one thing that I focus on because when we're, when you, when you, uh, when the economy changes and you're in a scenario like what we're seeing today, you still have a deal that will cash flow. Okay. I mean, that's, that's the problem that a lot of us are seeing right now in the market is that deals are not cash flowing. And so if you have a very, very, very healthy debt service coverage ratio, that's a real, you know, it's really backed by some real assumptions and some work, um, then you feel much more comfortable in that deal. Okay. If nothing else, you feel comfortable that the deal can help you last through and push through kind of the things like we're seeing now, which is a temporary kind of downturn. And then you come out, of the other, you know, come out on the other side and you're in good shape. So that's, that's what I would say is a, probably the most important metric that I think investors should pay attention to. You said a ton of gold nuggets on the Velocity of Capital and also just investing in general. Uh, do you have any final advice for investors looking to leverage the power of the velocity of money in their own real estate investing journey and any uh, like personal valuable tips that you've picked up along the way on your own investing journey? I'm sure, sure. So I've been a limited partner, a passive investor in 11 deals. And I'll tell you that um, one, one thing that I kind of wish I'd have done is when I find a deal that I really, I like the team, I know the market and I, and I look at this deal, the property and everything, I really like the deal. Um, I, I would have put more on fewer deals. Okay. Now I said that because, um, you know, there's some deals there for me, which is absolutely home runs. I'm not against diversification, but what I'm saying is once you have a thesis and, and you know that this deal fits it. And if you have the capital, um, I would caution people from defaulting to, I want to diversify just for the sake of diversification. Okay. If you have a couple of deals that you're looking at and one of them really, really is speaking to you and it makes a lot of sense, you know, the team they performed, um, then I would say, don't be afraid to, you know, double down on that, on that, on that deal. That's, that's, that's my own personal experience. I'm not trying to give any you know, risky advice. Still make sure that you value the merits of the deal, all that, the team, but that is something that I would have done um, personally. Yeah, you mentioned uh, having your thesis, and I, it might have just been the choice of words, but I really like that concept of like identifying your own investment strategy and, and how you what you want your investments to do for you. Can you expand briefly on how you chiseled down that thesis and maybe how you incorporated the velocity of money philosophy to that to make sure that the investments you were putting your money into aligned with it? Yeah, sure. So, so for me, I, I I started with the end in mind, and I knew that. You know, first of all, I wanted to do this uh, full time. I wanted to make sure that at about the five year mark that um, I had a, a good, healthy bit of the capital that I deployed, you know, to, to I wanted it to double within a certain amount of time. And so um, I, I, that that's how I started. I basically said, well, where, where do I want to be and which of these opportunities? Because at that time, I mean, you know, we were getting you remember like a couple of years ago, there were just tons of opportunities. There still are, but just it, it doesn't compare to what it was when the transactional volume was higher. Um, and so 
you know, at that point I said, well, okay, which of these deals is going to help me achieve that goal? So for me, the velocity of your capital is very important, but what's, what's really important about it is that you can actually map it out. It's not, so, it's not like it's this mystery that you can't do anything about. Um, so, so I was able to say, okay, here is my, my target. Here's my goal. Um, and, and which of these opportunities will help me get there so that I can then, you know, increase the velocity of my capital relative to kind of spreading it all out. And then, and then having something that, um, that I'm banking on that I really, I really have no, it's, it's somewhere in the future or something like that. Instead of me looking at what, what can I do today to make sure that I reach my near-term goal? And so that was kind of what I focused on. Sure. First of all, they can go to, well, thank you actually first uh, for having me on this show. I think you guys are amazing. Um, first of all, my, my website is Birch Prosper. So www.birch, Birch, and then Prosper, P-R-O-S-P-E-R.com. You can email me. I'm at brandon.jenkins at Birch Prosper. That's B-R-A-N-D-O-N dot J-E-N-K-I-N-S at birchprosper.com. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Brandon Jenkins, I know it's pretty common, but, <laughs> but I'm on there. And um, Instagram is, as well.